Amen. As we come to the scripture, let me ask you please to turn to Luke and chapter 19, Luke's gospel, chapter 19, to read verses 1 through 10. And as you find that, let's pray together. God, your word is a means of grace to us, the primary means of grace to us, really work in us by your spirit to to help us. Uh, Thank you for the gift of the scripture. Thank you for the life that is in it because it's breathed out by you. Thank you for how it, like no other word, transforms our lives. Because this is you speaking to us. May we hear your voice. May it do its perfect work in us. We are needy. We pray that you would help us. In Jesus name. Amen. Luke 19 verse 1. He, that is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and, and to save the lost. And then together we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Again, I go back to what I read in an email this week from a friend, Bill. Well, we need to hear great things about God. So we're going to hear great things about God. And providentially, we've been thinking through various encounters in the Gospels that people had with Jesus. And and. And what's wonderful about that is that we can continue on thinking about these encounters because Jesus has come to reveal God. Scripture says no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And so when we encounter Jesus, just as he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When we encounter Jesus, we're encountering God. And so we see Jesus in the great one that he is and the great things that he does and that is meant to encourage us today we're going to see something about jesus that we must see in the days in which we live Uh, we must see that he's come to seek and to save the lost people have been asking me uh because i always get the easy questions people have been asking me god what's bill what's god doing uh in these days Uh, We could spend a long time talking about that. But one thing I know for sure from this passage is that still today and all that's going on and maybe particularly through all that's going on, Jesus in his kindness and his graciousness and his love 
is seeking to save the lost. That's happening. Even now. Particularly now. And that is is great. We've been talking about various encounters, and I don't have time to go through all the ones that we've done. We've done a number uh, so far, but just remember last week we talked about this rich young man, this rich young ruler, as Luke puts it. We talked about this rich young man, and, and, and it was impossible to do enough or to do anything really to inherit the kingdom of God. And we said the good news about that was Jesus, because the good news that this man couldn't do enough, even though he tried to obey the law and thought he had, The good news about all of that is that Jesus has done it. He's done all that we need. So we really don't need to do because Jesus has already done. And so he says, come with me, follow me. We follow him. He's the one who's done it. And we have eternal life through him as we are in him. Today, this man Zacchaeus encounters Jesus. So the question is, what's he see when he encounters Jesus? We know that he sees Jesus. But so the point is, how does God reveal himself when Zacchaeus sees Jesus? How does God reveal himself to Zacchaeus, thus to us? And then ask the question, what happens to him when he really sees Jesus? Uh, what happens to him? And, and, and the question for us is, has that happened to me? Has it happened to you, like it happened to Zacchaeus in, in this way. Well, let's look. Uh, Jesus, it's getting very close, right, in Luke 19. So uh, Jesus is getting closer and closer to the cross. He's going through Gal- uh, I'm sorry, through Jericho to get there. And, uh, and, and, he, and, and, and a crowd forms around him, not unusual. And he, he's walking down. I don't know how you picture it in your mind's eye. Uh, I've been completely... Um, overtaken by all the little Sunday school pictures I colored of this when I was a kid. So I'm really not sure if, 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 if that's the case, but I, I just see Jesus walking down and people around him and, and, and there he is. Uh, now Zacchaeus can't get through to see Jesus though he wants to. We don't know exactly why he wants to see Jesus. What's it said? He wants to see who Jesus was. Maybe it heard some things about him. Maybe it heard, uh, that, that, that he was a miracle worker. Maybe it heard that he was, a uh, uh, the Messiah, the, the one Moses had spoken about, maybe had heard that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so, so for whatever reason, he wants to see Jesus. Maybe it's just because Zacchaeus thinks anybody that comes into my town, I, I need to meet. But he can't. Probably for a couple of reasons. One stated, one I think implied. The implied one is this, that nobody would let him through because nobody liked him. He may not even have tried because, because he had realized that Nobody would let him through. They would just elbow him away. And the second reason is because he was short. Uh, he couldn't see. Think uh, Danny DeVito. Think someone really diminutive, somebody small. And he can't see over the crowd. And so he does something that nobody would have expected a man to do, especially a man of his stature to do. First he ran, and that wouldn't have been something a man would do at that time. Not He wasn't dressed for a jog. He was, he was dressed to be out and about, a business day, if you will. And, and so he wouldn't have run, but he did. He ran. Maybe he saw a tree up ahead, and he said, well, if I can get there, I can climb it and, and see. But, but he ran ahead, and he got to a tree. And the second thing he did that was very undignified is that he climbed a tree. I mean, 
men don't climb trees. Children climb trees. Especially this man wouldn't have climbed a tree. You know, why would he have to do all of that? You see, tax collectors were despised people in the days in which Jesus lived. And, and the reason why was that Rome had outsourced the collection of taxes to Jewish men. And it would be their job to collect the taxes from the Israelites. And, and thus they would say, we'll collect this much for us. But then that tax collector could really collect as much as he wanted over that for himself. And so tax collectors were considered to be traitors. And they were also extortionists and thieves. Sometimes I have in my head, he's like a mafia boss. He was someone who extorted the people. And they were his own people. And so tax collectors were hated and despised. And so they wouldn't let him in. He had to climb a tree in order to see Jesus. But what's fascinating here, and all the commentators sort of pause here at this, and, and, and they say, what's fascinating here is that he was willing to humiliate himself, really, to see Jesus. And, and, and the senses which, for all of us, if we're going to come to faith in Jesus, if we're really going to come to know him, there's a certain amount of, well, there's a extreme amount of humility, if you will, required. Because first of all, we can't care what other people think. Because in order to become a Christian, in order to follow Jesus, then we have to forsake everything and follow him. This sense of, I have to admit that I've been wrong. I have to admit, even, that I'm a sinner. Which means I've not obeyed the law of God. Which means I haven't been godly. Which means I haven't followed real, true holiness. I haven't followed the law of God. I've broken it. And then I have to admit, there's actually nothing in the world I can do to stop me from doing that. I'm powerless. And then I have to admit that I can't do anything, not only to change it, but I'm under this penalty now, this just, righteous penalty from God. that I can't pay it. I have to admit all of that in order to really follow Jesus, and I'm utterly dependent upon him. In fact, the biblical word for this, one of them, is lost. I have to admit that I'm lost. And that's why I read this passage, all of it, from Luke 15. Because this is Jesus talking about lostness. He talks about a lost coin. He talks about a lost sheep. He talks about a lost person, a lost son. And what happens when you're lost? When you're lost, you're not at home and you can't find your way back. That's the point of being lost. If you can find your way back, you're not really lost. But you can't find your way back. Clearly for a coin, a coin can't find its way back. Cause... But, but a sheep, well, sheep aren't too intelligent. They can't find their way back. And a son can only find his way back when he realizes the way back. And, and, and the word lost really can be translated perish. In fact, in one of the most well-known verses in all the Bible, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him uh, should not perish, 
one could translate that, those who believe in him, would not be lost. It's the same word that we translate either perish or lost. Because you see, when something is lost, a sheep is lost, a person is lost, even a coin is lost, it perishes because it, it can't get back home. Now, a coin perishes because it'll never find its way back to the purse or the collection. It'll never be used for what a coin is supposed to be used for. It'll be just stuck there in the corner of the room or wherever it's lost. A sheep will perish uh, if lost because a sheep can't take care of itself. Unless the shepherd comes and finds it, it'll be lost and, and, and eternally, if you will, and, and lost and, and perish. And, and a human being lost means I'm apart from God. I'm estranged from God. I'm not home with him. I can't find my way back. Way back. Maybe I won't find my way back. And thus, what does that mean? It means that I'll perish. And so this lostness is of great significance. And in order to be found if you will, requires this sense of humility. Oh, I really am lost. In fact, the way we find it with the lost son, the prodigal, as we call him in verse 32 of Luke 15, it says, uh, the father puts it like this. He said, it was fitting uh, to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive, lost and is found so the, the comparison there, the parallelism there is dead and lost and alive and found. And so the humility for us as we come to follow Jesus is to admit, oh, I'm lost. I'm really lost. I'll perish unless, unless I'm really found, you see. Unless I'm really found. We are too. Humble ourselves. But, but, but no, there's something else too. And that is uh, another barrier to follow Jesus is not simply our pride. Thus, we need to be humbled. But it's also a sense of self-righteousness. That kind of pride. I always ask myself this question or often ask myself this question when I read this story. And that is, did the crowd actually see Jesus? And, of course, the answer is yes, physically they did. They had really good sight lines, but not very good spiritual sight lines. They didn't really see who he was. Because if he had come to save, seek and save the lost, they didn't realize themselves to be lost. And how do we know that? We know that because when Jesus began to interact with Zacchaeus, they grumbled. And they, they said, essentially, doesn't he know that he's a sinner? And I want to say to the crowd, as if you're not. But they didn't recognize themselves to be sinners. Therefore, they could never really see the one who had come to seek and to save sinners, to come and seek and save the lost. Oh, they saw him, but they really, really didn't see him. It's fascinating, especially as we read through the Gospel of Luke is that it appears that Luke is trying to convince us and say to us that Jesus is attracted to the outcasts. The outcasts from society. The ones the self-righteous always look down upon. That Jesus is attracted to these people and they're rather attracted to him. But, but these people called the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests, 
and the elders and the Sadducees. It seems like they're Jesus' biggest critics and he's theirs. I mean, uh, children were looked down upon in the days in which Jesus lived. You remember there was a time kids were around Jesus and the disciples even said, oh, keep the kids away. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Bring the kids. Uh, Women uh, looked down upon in the culture in which Jesus lived. But, But Jesus always talked with them and met with them. You remember the woman who came and washed Jesus' feet with her tears. And Samaritans, Samaritans were probably even lower than the, the tax collectors. And, 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 and Samaritans were despised by Israelites. But, but Jesus met with Samaritans, even this Samaritan woman, uh, who was immoral by everybody's standards. She was even outcast by her own Samaritan people. And yet Jesus came to her. And so, so we see that. In, in fact, even tax collectors. In fact, Jesus is referred to as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's not ever uh, uh, referred to as a friend of the Pharisees or of the religious leaders of the day. In fact, let's just take a, a trip through Luke's gospel very, very quickly. Turn to um, Luke and chapter 3 and verse 12. This is the passage about John the Baptist. And, uh, uh, and, and this is John's ministry. Verse 12, it says, Tax collectors came also to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also ask him and wait, uh, what shall we do? So what we see is that we have tax collectors in the line to be baptized. Where were the religious leaders? Oh, they were just watching. They didn't think they needed to repent. But the tax collectors figured they did. And so they were in the queue, if you will, to be baptized. And then in Luke in chapter 5 and verse 27, it says, After this, uh, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi saying, uh, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose, rose and followed him. So, so now Jesus actually calls Levi, Matthew, uh, a tax collector, to be one of the twelve, to be one of his disciples, to write the gospel. Uh, unthinkable. A tax collector uh, to do that. And, and then he goes on and says, And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And uh, uh, the Pharisees and scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, Jesus wasn't saying there's some of you out there that are righteous and not sinners and some of the out there that are unrighteous and thus sinners. He was saying you're all sinners, but 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 there's only some that see it. The ones who don't. I'm not here for you. The ones who do. Then chapter seven and verse twenty nine, we see a bit of a summary of this um, the greats, when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees, that is the religious leaders, and the lawyers, more religious leaders, rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. See, it was the tax collectors and, and sinners. In fact, uh, uh, Matthew uh, actually summarizes this 
whole point in, in Matthew uh, chapter 21, verse 31. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. It's fascinating. The religious leaders missed it. They couldn't see it. Why? Because of self-righteousness. They weren't willing to run and climb a tree. They weren't willing to humble themselves and see really Jesus. They didn't think they really needed someone to come and save them, if you will. And then in chapter um, 7 again of Luke, beginning with verse 36, we see another Pharisee. We talked about him a few weeks ago. Simon, who threw a party and this woman came and uh, she was a notorious sinner. And Simon was aghast that Jesus would allow her to touch him. Because Simon didn't think himself in need of forgiveness. But this woman knew that she had been forgiven. And it's, it's those who see their sin, you see, and, and, and receive forgiveness, who love Jesus. And then the passage I, I read just a moment ago from Luke 15, the opening verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees inscribed grumbles saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Do you get the picture? See what's happening. The, the, the tax collectors and sinners were kind of bunched up together, it appears. And, and the other, the religious leaders kind of bunched up over here. And you can just feel the tax collectors and sinners leaning in to hear what Jesus has to say. They're attracted to him. And you can just feel the religious leaders being repulsed and backing up because Jesus is going to talk to these tax collectors and sinners too. And Jesus knew that, of course, so then he started going down this way about the lost sheep. And notice what he says at the end of that, verse 7. He says, just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. Oh, my. And just feel the tax collectors and sinners leaning in even more and the scribes and Pharisees leaning back even more in the midst of that. And then the coin, just so I tell you, verse 10, there's joy in heaven before the angel, uh, before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Oh, the same again. And then how could they miss it about the prodigal son? Because really that's a story about the lost brother. Who were the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders who had been there all this time and thought everything was good, thought they had earned their place with the father and, and didn't realize that It's impossible to earn your place. It comes by grace. And then in Luke 18, in verse 10, a passage I'm sure you're familiar with. We have two people praying, a tax collector and a Pharisee. And you remember the story. It's the the Pharisee who who gives a resuscitation before God of self-congratulations. And then the tax collector is humbled. It says, please, God, have mercy upon me, the sinner. And Jesus said, which one is justified? Which one is actually declared righteous before God? Which one is actually accepted and received by God? It's the tax collector. 
It's the one who realizes his need, who understands his his sin, you see. See, these descendants of Abraham, who were the religious leaders, they thought, well, I'm a descendant of Abraham, therefore, I'm in. And, and if not in because of that, I'm in because I'm good. I'm in because I'm able to do what I need to do in order to inherit eternal life. And they put down their noses at tax collectors and Jesus. But Zacchaeus doesn't seem to care about them. All he cares about is seeing Jesus. Do you feel the attraction? Did you feel the Holy Spirit at work? Theologians call this effectual calling. The Spirit of God is at work wooing, drawing us to the Savior. That something's happening here in Zacchaeus' life that's compelling him, working in him, so that he desires to really see Jesus. And he wants to see him. You get the sense because he, he's seeing his hope, his only hope. He knows his life. He looks back upon it. He knows he's a traitor. He knows he's extorted his people and stolen from them. He knows he's a thug. He knows he's gained his wealth on the backs of his own people. But now he sees, really sees his hope. He sees Jesus. He's willing to do anything to get a glimpse. And there he is up the tree. And it's all grace, you see. It's grace. The very grace of God uh, to sinners. What's that passage? God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Why? Because the, humble, because the, the proud says, I, I, I'm, I'm good. Thank you very much. I'm all right. I don't need it. <laughs> the humble says, listen, I need everything you've got. I've got nothing. He gives grace to the humble. And he resists the proud. And then something happens, you know. Zacchaeus is up the tree and, 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 and Jesus is passing by. You know the song. I won't sing it. You may be singing it at home right now with your kids, but I'm not going to sing it. But, you know, he passes by and he looks up in the tree and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. Uh, and notice how it is in the text versus the song. The song's good. But he says, for I must Stay at your house today. Zacchaeus doesn't seem to have much of a choice here. And all this while, we think that it's Zacchaeus who's trying to initiate something with Jesus, at least to see him. But now what we really see is that Jesus has an appointment with Zacchaeus and Jesus is the initiator in this relationship. Jesus could have passed him by, but he didn't. He initiates this relationship because it's all about Jesus. Ultimately, he says, he says, commands him, get out of the tree. I must go to your house today. And that was an amazing thing. The crowds got it. They grumbled about it because they say, we know what it means to go to his house. You're just not going to pop over for 15 minutes and have a cup of tea. You're going to have dinner with him and it's going to be a long dinner. There's going to be great conversation and you're going to spend the night. And you're going to engage in this man's life. And he's going to engage in your life. He's, you're going to affect him. You're saying, I'm accepting him. I'm going to his house. 
And you get the sense again. However well developed this is in Zacchaeus' mind. That God has accepted him. Even though his sin. And it says that he received him joyfully. If I might just read a passage from a man named J.C. Ryle, who's a 19, was a 19th century Anglican bishop. He puts it like this. He said, unasked, our Lord stops and speaks to Zacchaeus. Unasked, he offers himself to be a guest in the house of a sinner. Unasked, he sends into the heart of a tax collector the renewing grace of the Spirit and puts him that very day among the children of God. How did you become a Christian? Well, you can tell the story however you wish. But unasked, (laughs) Jesus came to you, called your name. I don't know if it freaked Zacchaeus out when Jesus looked up and said, Zacchaeus. <laughs> I, I don't know if, if he thought, well, maybe ask somebody along the way. How do you know my name? Uh, it doesn't seem to even be a problem for him because everything else seems to flow so nicely for him. But, but you know, when I baptize our little ones, I always pray, uh, God, you know their name. And on the day of your appointment, work in their heart in such a way that they would hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and believe. It's all about that name, isn't it? He knows his own, like a shepherd knows his own sheep. And he calls each one by name. And when he called Zacchaeus by name, it was just the same way of calling Lazarus, who was in the tomb, by name. And Lazarus came out. Zacchaeus, there's some power in the Lord Jesus calling our name and he calls the name of his sheep and his sheep hear his voice and that changes everything all of a sudden it seems like it was just Zacchaeus and Jesus and Zacchaeus is filled with joy at that moment Ryle if I might goes on to say this it's impossible was such a passage as this before us, to exalt too highly the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot maintain too strongly that there is in him an infinite readiness to receive and an infinite ability to save sinners. When you think of Jesus, is that how you think of him? When you think of God, is that how you think of him? Here's one who has the infinite readiness and the infinite ability to save sinners. I mean, he's welcoming. Do you feel that? Do you get that? And above all, we cannot hold too firmly that salvation is not of works, but of grace. That's the great news, you see. I mean, if he's just standing there willing to receive me and and, and I've got to show up, me, and bring something, I'm in trouble. But it's of grace, you see. He's there receiving Working in us. If ever there was a soul sought and saved without having done anything to deserve it, that soul was the soul of Zacchaeus. Let us grasp these doctrines firmly and never let them go. The price is above rubies. Grace, free grace, is the only thought which gives men rest in a dying hour. 
Let us proclaim these doctrines confidently to everyone to whom we speak about spiritual things. Let us bid them come to Jesus just as they are and not wait in the vain hope that they can make themselves fit and worthy to come. At least let us tell them that Jesus Christ waits for them and would come and dwell in their poor sinful hearts. They just must receive him. Oh, yes, you see, that's this grace. It brings joy because, you see, it changes everything. Now, the next part is really is really crucial here. Verse eight says, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord. Now, I don't know where exactly this happened. I don't know if it happened right at the base of the tree or if it happened later in Zacchaeus house. It seems like it happens right away, right at the base of the tree. Oh, but then Jesus says later, salvation has come to this house. So I'm not sure. In my Sunday school pictures, they were always at Zacchaeus' house. I don't know. Zacchaeus stood and said to him, Lord, behold, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, we must be careful here. Because we mustn't think that it goes like this. We mustn't think that it goes that Zacchaeus said... I'm going to uh, give back for when I, what I stole from the poor. And I'm going to, to, to give back what I uh, stole from others. So I'm going to give to the poor. I'm going to give back what I stole from others. And then Jesus said, okay, salvation has now come to this house. No, 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 no. It's that Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. And then Zacchaeus said, I'll give it away. See the difference. See the difference. See, Jesus had first received him. And and Zacchaeus knew that. He received it with joy. When he said, I'm coming to your house, I'm going to engage in your life, and all of that. That was, in a sense, uh, Zacchaeus' conversion experience, if you will. He received it with joy. Then that grace changed everything. That grace overflowed in his life in such a way that it brought him not only to faith, but also to what we call repentance. And repentance is what happens in a person as they come to faith in Jesus. And they also then, along with their faith, realize that now there's a new way to live. In, in the Old Testament, uh, the word repentance referred to a turning around. You're going this way, you turn around and you go that way. Well, in New Testament... Uh, the language is similar, but it's a, a change of mind and a change of heart. Something's happened in me in such a way so that I desire to go in the different direction. And so we see it here. And so Zacchaeus is able to say, hey, I know who I've been and I'm not that person anymore. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give to the poor and I'm going to give back to all those from whom I've stolen and, and, and he does more than the law requires. The law doesn't require him to give fourfold back. The law only requires to give him back what he's stolen plus about 20%. But this time he gives no four times that amount. I mean, I have this picture in my mind. You see, Zacchaeus is walking down the street and he comes up to a house and he's holding a package. And the people in the house are looking out the window. They all know it's Zacchaeus. So they blow out all the lights and they hide in the corners. And he knocks and nobody answers. And then he leaves. Then after a while they look out and they see the package and they open up the door and they open up the package. 
And there's $4,000 in it. And there's a note that's from Zacchaeus. And he said, I stole a thousand from you, but I met Jesus. That's it, you see. It really changes everything. If I may, another quote. This from uh, Philip Ryken, who presently is, what is he? President of Wheaton College, was pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia before that. Anyway, in that moment, Zacchaeus not only saw who Jesus was, he discovered his own long lost identity. He was a man loved by God with an eternal love and longed for so much that God had sent his son on purpose to find and to rescue him from his lostness by coming personally to his home and bringing the sense of acceptance with God into his very heart. This is what the love of Jesus does in the heart of a sinner. The way he accepts us leads us to accept him. With that acceptance comes a true sense of identity, the assurance that we're children of God and that God loves us in Jesus Christ. There's no longer any need to run away from God or to hide from other people or to pretend to be anything except who we really are. You see, when the grace of God really comes upon a person's life, it changes everything. And it changes everything. And I want to say for the good, but even to say for the good so minimizes it. It changes everything for the eternal good of that person. Because now you're home. You're no longer lost. You're no longer going to perish. You're no longer perishing. But now you're home. And in that sense, the most profound sense, everything at that moment is really right. And everything changes. You see, this prayer the Apostle Paul has in Ephesians in chapter 3 follows along with this. Verse 14, Ephesians 3. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, as a believer in Jesus, he, he dwells in us. But, but, but what Paul is trying to say here in the language that he uses is that he's to make his home in you. He went home with Zacchaeus. But more profoundly than that, he made his home in Zacchaeus. When we're found, after having been lost, we're home. And Jesus is home in us. So he says that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints whether it's the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and, the, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See, when Jesus comes to live, what happens is he changes everything. It's his house now. He lives in us. He's the king. And, and so he's going to decorate the house. Uh, just like he wants it. He's going to take out our pride and put in humility. He's going to take out impatience and put in patience. He's going to take out hate and put in love. He's going to take out slanderous thoughts and put in gracious thoughts. You see, that, that's him. He's going to put 
all that reflects him. If you come to our house, which you can't, I guess, for a few weeks, but if you would come to our house, you'd walk in and you'd say, Karen lives here. Because it reflects her as well it should, because if it reflected me, you probably wouldn't want to come in. But it reflects her. Karen lives here. Yes. And that's how people are to see us, you see. And when Zacchaeus was walking around after this moment, when Zacchaeus was walking around after this moment, people would say, Jesus lives there. Changed. Everything, you see. Everything. Now the question is, how can Jesus be such a friend uh, to such lowlifes, to such outsiders, to those who are lost? Well, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, puts it like this. He basically, he says, how can the ultimate insider become a friend to ultimate outsiders? How can an ultimate insider, I mean, Jesus is an insider. He's a member of the Trinity. He's the son of God. That's about as insider with God as you can get. But yet when he was on the cross, he became the ultimate outsider. Because he was forsaken by his father. As outsiders are to be forsaken. So that he could bring us in. Again, people... I've been asking me, God bless you, Bill, what's God doing in these days? And again, we could make a long list of things, and we will perhaps in the weeks to come. But this I know to be true, that even now, particularly now, Jesus is seeking to save the lost. I mean, death is on our minds. We read about it all the time. We don't want to make light of it at all. It's significant. And and certainly pray that God will protect us and keep us healthy and those we love for sure. And we pray that God will work in such a way that a cure will be found quickly so fewer people will die. But Kathy Keller, Tim's wife, recently said that the death rate will not be changed. Because of this virus. It's always been one to a person. We're just more aware of that right now. Than perhaps we would be. On a normal day. In the month of March. And our only hope you see. Is the same that it's always been. Six months ago when things seemed really nice. Our hope is exactly the same today. And however we think about God in these days when life is difficult, we need to view him, we need to see him as he really is. As the one who sent his son because he loves. The one who sent his son to seek and save the lost. Uh, He wants us to come to him. Do you see him that way? Oh, sometimes it's difficult in in days when when the stress is high and we're worried about all this and that. It really is difficult. I get that. But but we have to keep in mind, please, this week, bear in mind, have running through your head that Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. And so through this time, he'll do it, perhaps through you, throughout through me, as we pray for one another, as we pray for others, as we share our faith with others, as people see us and ask us and say, what's your hope in the days in which we live? Let's join together.
Let's join together and pray that when the all clear comes, that more will be in the body of Christ than where before the virus hit. And we'll be able to look back and we'll be able to say, yes, of course, he's still seeking and he's still saving the lost. What a great thing. What a great God. Uh, Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. We're grateful for your kindness to not leave us in our sin. Instead, God, you planned and carried out our redemption. So please, I pray, in these days, work in such a way as to draw many to yourself. Please, Holy Spirit, as the gospel is shared, work in the minds and hearts of all people, uh, that just as with Zacchaeus, that many will humble themselves before Jesus, see their weakness, know their need for salvation, know that it's from his grace alone. Jesus, please, we pray. Come to them by your word and spirit and save them, that each may know real hope, the hope of eternal life. It's having this hope, they will not fear. And this too, please, keep us ever mindful that you're infinitely good, that you're all wise, that you're all powerful, that you're ever present with us, that you love us with an everlasting love, so that we may assure that you desire our good, that you know every good end and the means for bringing it about, that nothing can thwart the good that you've planned for us, and you bring about this good because you love us. And may we be confident of this, knowing that you have given your son for us, for he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he also along with him give us all things. So please enable us to be still, always knowing that you are God, that you'll be exalted on the earth, that you're with us, that you're our fortress. And surely we pray, Lord, that you would bring healing where there is sickness, comfort where there is grief, a sense of your presence where there is loneliness. Where there's discouragement, Father, bring courage. Where there's fear, bring faith. Where there's anxiety, bring hope. Darkness, bring light. And all this through Jesus who has conquered the grave. So please, we pray, God, raise up in our land and throughout the world strong moral leadership. Grant wisdom to those in church and government and education and medicine. Father, I think for the ones in our church who are in the medical and healthcare fields, that you would grant them protection and strength and wisdom and compassion. For educators among us at our universities, our high schools and middle schools and elementary schools and those who school at home, which I suppose now is pretty much everyone, uh, grant wisdom and grace. For husbands and wives and moms and dads and friends as they care for one another, and grace them with the character of Christ, his love and patience. Father, For the children, please keep them. Uh, Father, give them that um, 
childlike humility, that dependence that knows they need and that they'll look to you. Please be with them. Father, enable us uh, to love each other well and our neighbors among us that all would see uh, your love through us. And may we ask, spare us. That through the skill of those in the medical community that many would be restored to health and give wisdom and strength to those searching for a cure, we ask you to stop the spread of this disease that we may see your glory and give you thanks. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.